0: KUOZ 100.5 is an FCC-licensed radio station operated by the University of the Ozarks, Clarksville, Arkansas. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to From the Concert Hall with your hosts Corbin Sturch and Zachary Payne, your vintage radio program here on KUOZ 100.5 FM. Community Radio, produced by the Radio, Television, Video Department here at University of the Ozarks in Clarksville, Arkansas. From the concert hall plays some of the famous artists of the past, as well as features a few of our very own from right here at home. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we take you live right here to our very own little concert hall.
1: Thank you for tuning in from, to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary
2: Payne.
0: And I'm Corbin Sturch. With us this week, we have special guest Wesley Needham. Wes, say hello to the folks out there.
2: Hey, all you guys.
0: You know, we, we decided to pick Wes up off the street. We decided to do something new this week. Instead of bringing in an artist and talking about them, we're going to continue our topic this week to the Renaissance, but get, get outsider feedback here in the studio. Let them actually hear, hear what they say have to say here in person. Right, Zach?
1: Absolutely. Um, be a nice little change. Instead of having another musical background, uh, here inside the studio, we'll be able to just hear how you, know, how you guys feel out there. So it gives us a good feedback and also just a better idea of how you guys feel about the music.
0: Right. You know, Partly it's probing to see where we can go with the show in the future, what, what y'all really like. And part of it really is that we truly care about what how classical music makes you feel and what the people out there feel about it. Absolutely. So, Zach, do you want to introduce us once again to the Renaissance?
1: (laughs) Sure. I can introduce this a little bit. Um, The Renaissance is the uh, period between the medieval and the Baroque period. Uh, It's really that transitional period. There was a lot of change during this time, uh, both uh, religious, technological, um, uh, inside music, literature. It was just a really great time for things to be happening. Um, The church was dealing with a few... uh, with the the Protestant movement. And so uh, with literature and art and music, they didn't have time really to micromanage anything, and so there was a lot lot more freedom
0: there. Right. You know, he mentioned problems with the church. During the Renaissance, we saw the Protestant Reformation also, which is when Martin Luther split from the Catholic Church, putting his 95 Thesis to the doors in Wittenberg. After that, a few years later, he was excommunicated, And he really reformed the church in the new sense that now you don't pay to go to heaven. Just because you pay doesn't mean your sins are gone. Now you get the actual, you actually have to love Jesus and work for Jesus and truly dedicate yourselves to that life in Christ instead of just paying a couple bucks to the priest and hoping it's all gone. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And then we also had the, uh, the beginning of the Anglican Church with uh, King Henry VIII with his split from the Catholic Church, um, which was due to his uh, want to divorce his sixth wife, and the church wouldn't warrant it. Uh, his sixth wife, because uh, his other five, including his sixth, would not bear him any sons, and so this was the reason of that. But it started a whole other Protestant group.
0: Right. We got the Anglican Church from that, which is what we know in America as the Episcopal Church or the Church of England, which is what Anglican means, England. Um, Because at that time it was called Angloland, or you were called Anglican. (laughs) But we, we saw Henry VIII forming his own church from that. And, you know, the Catholic Church, he's right. It wouldn't grant a divorce because his marriage had been consummated. Exactly.
1: And um, they had granted a few in the past for other reasons. Um, uh, alle- uh, allegations of cheating, uh, things such as that. He was able to wiggle his way around, but inside this one, he had no other excuse than she won't bear me a son. And the church was like, that's not going to fly.
0: It's not a legitimate reason, let's face it. Not at all. <laughs> uh, but yes, we saw the split in the Church of England. Well, the split to make the Anglican Church, Church of England, and this was 20 years after Luther, of course, but you know, this year's before we saw Luther splitting. Luther also had very humanistic ideas. Zach, you know a bit about that.
1: Um, he, uh, Luther uh, adopted some of his ideas from uh, John Locke, who came before him. Um, his ideas were basically just that uh, humans have simple, basic rights, being born into the world. Um, many of those rights that are included into our uh, Constitution today um, just like uh, the every man has the right to the pursuit of happiness, stuff like that. You have your basic rights that you're born with that no one can take away from you. And so that was something that John Locke had uh, come up with and that Martin Luther pushed really hard and uh, is included inside a lot of the Protestant groups.
0: Right. With Luther and with the Church of England, we had growing out of them, of course, the Lutheran Church and the Episcopal Church and the Church of England, which were the churches actually formed from that, but we saw Baptists and Methodists the church of Christ eventually the pentecostals we saw the denominations we know today grow from that split it's because of that split that we have those denominations absolutely so, thank luther thank an aggravated henry viii <laughs> <laughs> you may you may go to one of those churches that split from that and i mean if you're catholic that's great you you're the foundation for all of christianity. If not most of christianity yeah
1: absolutely and um and a step away from religion, though uh, we can't forget about some of the great artists of the time, like Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Donatello, Raphael, Michelangelo, all of those great artists. Where you know you go to Italy and you see all the uh, all the great paintings, all the great statues of marble, and like all of those were due in uh, due to the, I guess, freedom of art during this time.
0: Right, with uh, Michelangelo, we saw the Sistine Chapel ceiling. The fresco on the ceiling, you know, <laughs> we 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 mentioned this a few shows ago, but again, I just like to go back to the fact that he went he almost went blind painting that. Exactly. He just laid on his back and scaffolding, literally looking right up into that paint as he painted, and it just kept dripping down into his eyes.
1: And it's phenomenal to think. I mean, to picture, to paint something that large and only being able to see a certain amount of space. At a time, it was a phenomenal th- feat to paint something that, and if, to be that accurate and that well done, and only being able to do so much at a time—it's crazy to think about.
0: Yeah, Wes. Wes, when you look at um, Renaissance art and seeing things that come out of it, what what comes to your head? What what comes to mind?
2: Well, um, due to the religious nature of the time, the the people were able to actually start thinking for themselves. Um, uh, John Calvin uh which came after Luther after he was uh exiled um he he, he continued to give structure to what Luther was th- thinking and talking about and continued his humanism and individualism which those artists took for full, full pleasure in using uh you know yeah. all of them and I mean that was the Sistine Chapel they were able to uh Actually, he was actually able to show his passion freely. Without mean, nobody had to like pay him for that. He just wanted to do it mostly,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and without having to have a necessary permission. Mm-hmm. Like they had, it didn't. They didn't micromanage everything that he was doing, and have to approve every stroke.
0: Right. Well, yes, he was commissioned by the church. It was all him after that.
1: Absolutely, they didn't have a say in it, and that's how artists could command them at that time. It's like yes, you can pay me to do this, but no, this is my work, not yours.
0: Right. You you came to me. You wanted me. So you can sit back and I'm going to give you what you paid for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that's the mentality at the
1: time. And then we also had uh, great movements inside literature during this time. Uh, Shakespeare, this was his, his era uh, over in England uh, with uh, all of his amazing plays that we all had to read in high school. <laughs> um, and were rather dull at the time, but now uh, read, going back and rereading them, they're mm-hmm. quite enjoyable, actually. And then... Um, His uh, interesting bit of information, I've said it every week just because it's it's interesting to me at least, Uh, the Globe Theater, that's actually where the saying standing room only comes from. The uh, basic seating inside the Globe Theater was on the floor and there were no seats there. And so that's where it comes from.
0: So remember folks, if you take nothing else from this segment (laughs) of history, remember that standing room only comes from Shakespeare and the Globe Theater in England. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And then um, musically, uh, we had our first real published composer, Thomas Tallis, who we'll be touching on more later in the show, um, and uh, his great works that he did. Right.
0: But to start the musical section, we look at Guillaume Dufay. He was born in 1397 and lived on through to 1474. He was a Franco-Flemish composer. So we're seeing bits of Italy and bits of France in his work. He was a central figure in the Burgundian school, which was a school of music there in the area of Burgundy in France, that really helped shape a lot of musicians, artists, and influential leaders at that time in the area.
1: And if you remember from our last show, um, the reason why that area was so important to to artists and musicians um, was due to uh, Philip the Good or Philippe de Bon or Philip III of Burgundy, however you want to put it. Um, he, uh, he was a great patron of the arts, and uh, so that was due to right. him. So just a little added information.
0: He was actually considered, uh, uh, Dufay was considered actually one of the most famous and influential composers in Europe in the 15th century. So that you know this is really early on in the Renaissance, and actually with his work we see that because he was one of the last composers to use that medieval style, but also one of the first to use the new style in the Renaissance, the malefice, uh, harmon- uh, bleh, the, Maleficus uh, harmonics that were symbolic of the Renaissance, that more than one voice going on and on at once. With his work, though, so, we see that most of them are nearly identical. And this was due in part, in part to the fact that at that time, writing the same way or you know, nearly the same way over and over again, was considered a perfection of your art. And that's to say, in his style of music within music at that point that was distinctly him. But it also made his works memorable and memorizable so the people who were singing them, if they sang one of his pieces, it was easy for them to pick up different pieces at that time. Music back then was not like we knew it today. You didn't get a page singing everyone's part. You just got your single lone part, and you were left to fend for yourself in having to figure out where you fit in with the other singers. Exactly. You had to be able to keep right on time, otherwise you would be lost in just a sea of music. Right. I think we, we've we experienced that a lot in chamber singers. We've, um, we do a lot of renaissance music, and we feel that because the parts aren't exactly the same. No,
1: they overlap each other, come in at different times. It makes for beautiful choral music, but... Singing it can be challenging at times, and I can only imagine if we only got our one part. Dr. Gorman (laughs) has joked slash threatened us with that a few times, and so hopefully
0: not. And and that's what we saw with his music, was an overlapping, unadorned, plain chant. So everyone was chanting their own style, and just this plain chant style, but it was also parallel motion. The music was almost identical with him in the way that it moved, but it was still... Individual all in itself between each of the parts. We also believe, just just a fun fact, history also believes that he is the illegitimate child of an unknown priest. They mm. they think his father might have actually been a priest. How interesting! Yeah,
1: <laughs> especially this being the time before the actual reformation of the church. Whenever because yep. Luther allowed priest to marry right correct yes um and so this was before that so this would have been a huge no no for that priest he would have been in a lot of trouble
0: talk about a scandal but (laughs) you know our our listeners also have to remember that at that time it wasn't the priesthood and the structure of the church was not nearly as strict as it is today and who gets in and who doesn't anyone could pay to get into this And the priest basically had control over all of his parishioners. He was a very respected member of society and had great authority where he was.
1: Absolutely. And so, I mean, with anywhere that there's power, it's going to get abused eventually. And so it's hard to say, or, you know, certain rules aren't
0: followed, that kind of thing. Right. And with Dufay, he actually worked in the church his whole life. He even worked for a few popes. Now, whenever I was doing my research, I couldn't find the names in the books of these actual popes, but guessing from the time period, I'm sure we could try to figure out which popes actually make sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he, he was born and died in Cambrai, and a really interesting fact about his death is that at the time... When he was, he died of an illness, but he was ill for several weeks leading up to his death, and he requested that the Ave Regina Caelorum be be played at his deathbed, and between each of the verses, each each one of the, each of the motets, he would beg for forgiveness and plead for forgiveness between each of these verses. So it would be verse and plead and verse and plead, and that was going to be how he wanted to end his life pleading for that forgiveness from God that at, at, during the Renaissance and the medieval era, which is eras he would have seen both bits come and go. Well, come in. One, he'd see the medieval period in and the Renaissance come in. Definitely. But he would still have that huge influence from the, the medieval period because that was the vast majority of his life. The Absolutely. Medieval, the Renaissance period really hadn't taken effect when he died. It was still in transition. But, sadly, the piece didn't get finished before he died. And he he did die without ever hearing it, without getting that last bit of his will portrayed. Now, the first piece we have by Dufay tonight is entrez Vu. Zach, do you want to give the English translation to that? Absolutely. The English
1: translation is, Among yourselves, general lovers, take care of this New Year's Day. Each to serve his sweetheart well, and flee melancholy, if you wish to be happy. Do not look for anything but to have fun and games, and to live life well. Among yourselves, gentle lovers, take care of this New Year's Day, each to serve his sweetheart well. And do not concern yourselves with the envious ones, who are tra- traitorous and spiteful. Sing, dance, whatever any one may, and whoever cannot sing, let him laugh. I cannot give you better advice. Among yourselves, gentle lovers, take care of this New Year's Day, each to serve his sweetheart well and flee melancholy, if you wish to be happy.
0: Well, that definitely fits into our Valentine's thing coming up this week. Absolutely. <laughs> With Valentine's on Saturday, we saw a lot of love in that song. You know, Wes, how do you think, how do you think music plays into love? How do you, think it, do you think it affects love?
2: Other than winning over the woman or man... I think, well, music has always been something that, you know, causes emotions to happen or, uh, you know, it's just, it's a way to turn them up in sort of a way uh, to kind of get what you want. So in love, you uh, usually see that, you know, it's usually men. We always go for that, to serenade a woman. Uh, usually, usually we're pretty good at it.
0: What was that? PBL and actus was, was that who was doing it today? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It was um, they were. You would pay, and they would serenade your sweetheart during dinner tonight.
2: Perfect example.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it music does play into a lot of people's deep emotions, especially in trying to win over that sweet lover of yours mm-hmm. with a guitar.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, music. I would say definitely plays a huge part in romance, um, in all aspects of it. Um, You know, you find a song that you like, you can connect through that. Or, you know, everyone has that song that they first danced to, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I think that music goes hand in hand with relationships, like different songs and different milestones. And also the kind of music that you're both listening to at the time is a milestone inside that relationship.
0: Right. So maybe in hearing this piece, the entrevue, which is, it's in French. Maybe you'll be able to hear that message of love that I think Dufay was trying to send across through it. So, please, enjoy Entre vous. So that was Entrevue by Dufay. I, I hope our listeners out there could, could feel that lighthearted sense of love in the piece.
1: Absolutely. And especially being just around Valentine's Day, you know, play, play, play something from the Renaissance. You know, it was a time of love, time of, uh, time of you know, interesting music, uh, some of it really beautiful that we'll get to. Um, play right. something like that, you know, try and get the tears. In the eyes, the you know beautiful <laughs> Valentine's Day tears. And maybe maybe we're
0: winning a few of our Valentines out there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well,
2: you know, it was also a time of dancing, and since it was a yeah. individualistic uh, time, people were able to dance in a way they haven't been able to dance. It was always a formal way of dancing, and now we were able to get like the, the flowy you know dance however you wish. <laughs> um, you know, unless right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Absolutely. That's a good point that we haven't made yet actually that yeah. yeah. Um, it was a up, t- dance. up until now, uh the only the only dances that were still like choreographed were the uh, court dances, but people on the streets even as they were listening to this kind of music, they could dance however they were pleased. It wasn't a uh, you have to dance this way. That's why we don't hear that steady drum so much in the background of this music anymore.
0: Uh, that was that was a great point to make, especially after Looking back the last two weeks at Renaissance dance and court music, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really glad you made that point. I can't believe we'd missed it. I know. I <laughs> overlooked that entirely. <laughs> so, our next piece is called J'ai Mis Mon Cher. Uh, Wes, can you give us the English translation for that? It's um, the typical Renaissance court piece you would hear. It's got three parts to it. So, you'll see that parallel motion, but with its own parts. So, please, Wes. Okay. Uh...
2: I have set my heart and my thoughts, know this for a certain truth, to serve you, worthy lady, fair, good, with a clear and noble look. And I swear to you by my oath, so long as my body lasts, wherever I am, I shall truly say that you are peerless.
0: See, now that's beautiful. That, That to me says, no matter where you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what condition I'm in, I'm going to love you.
1: Mm-hmm. Unconditional love.
0: Yeah. That was something that was, people really believed in back in the Renaissance. And I, I think it's something we still can all believe in now.
1: Absolutely. it
0: provides great hope.
1: And so as you can see also inside these choral pieces that we're doing, you're seeing a very big difference in the way that a lot of them are is because they're not written all about God. They're not all about the love for God or Jesus and the birth of Christ. It's nothing, it's, it's not like that. Now it's personalized. It's like, I can learn this and I can sing this to the woman that I love.
0: Right. It wasn't just that only sacred music or only music for the court. music became personable. It became for everyone. It became the common man's music, more so than it ever was before, I think.
1: Exactly. And so that's why I say that. That's why we've been saying that this was such a huge time of change for music. While a lot of the styles still seem the same, I mean, this is now for everyone. Music isn't just for the church.
0: Right. Here you had this person who was considered the most famous and influential composer in Europe from the 15th century writing just about love and the common man it's a It's a huge deal to see this in the past, we wouldn't have seen this like we do now,
2: absolutely so yeah, we see we see simplicity in just like love songs today, right back then it was something so awe, oh, there was some awe to it whenever someone was able to write something about love and actually you know confess it.
0: There was more meaning to it. It was right. eloquent, it was thoughtful. It was poetic they their hearts went into it, I think more so than we ever put into them today.
2: Absolutely. They were able to feel something outside of the church for a change.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So here it is. J'ai mis mon cher. KUOZ 100.5 is an FCC-licensed radio station operated by the University of the Ozarks, Clarksville, Arkansas.
2: You are listening to From the Concert Hall here on KUOZ 100.5 FM. Community radio from University of the Ozarks here in Clarksville, Arkansas.
1: Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Fain,
0: And I'm Corbin Starch. If you've been with us so far, you've just heard about Guillaume Dufay, and we've talked a little bit about the Renaissance, touched a bit more on the medieval, even touched back on dance, even. Absolutely. Just keep going back. You know, to introduce also a guest tonight we have with us, Wesley Needham. Wes, would you say hi to the folks listening out there? Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Wes has been a great resource and a great addition to the show tonight to talk with us. Through the topics of choral music in the Renaissance, Zach, do you want to take us on to the next composer who I know is your favorite tonight, Thomas Tallis? Absolutely. So, Thomas Tallis—he was
1: born in 1505. So, this is about a, this is about you know eighty years or so after our former composer. He was born well into the middle of the Renaissance. So, he's acclimated to life. And during this time, uh, he was an English composer who held a huge role in English choral music and is considered by some to be one of the best English composers of this time um talus was born uh around the reign of henry the seventh um little is known about his early life um it's believed that he might have been uh, part of the chapel royal st james palace um which he later joined as a man as well uh like i said there's very little known about his early life and so it's hard to say um his first known musical job however was at dover which is now university of dover and he played as the organist there in 1532 um, he later, uh, that later led his career in London. Um, he had a number of performances before, uh, but then in 1543, he was sent to the court, uh, as gentleman of the chapel royal, which he composed and performed, uh, for Henry VIII, Edward the VII, uh, VI, Queen Mary, and Queen Elizabeth. And so he performed for many royals there in England. Um, and in fact, he was actually, uh, one of the first composers, uh, to have his, uh, music, pu- uh, actually published using the printing press, uh, authorized by Queen Elizabeth during the time, which was huge. Um, he eventually married, uh, her, uh, the woman's name was, uh, Joan in 1552, and, uh, he kind of settled down then, um, uh, in, uh, Greenwich, uh, and he kind of lived there until, uh, his death in 1585. He had a peaceful death, died of old age, uh, Joan would live four years after his, uh, passing. Um, Talos' music was mostly religious. Um, At the beginning of his career, um, he would just kind of write for... he would adjust for the king or queen that was in power. Most of his pieces uh, were about the creation or birth of the Christ and his earlier career. Um, as he started to get older, his music uh, was still religious but started to get a little bit darker. Um, <laughs> uh, and so about mid mid of his life, uh, it was about the salvation of the soul and the soul's relationship to Christ. And then at the very end of his life, he uh, started writing more about uh, tormented souls and their redemption. And so you could see as he got older how his interest changed. And it was He's just one of the best composers of this
0: time. Oh, I I agree. Whenever I think of Renaissance music outside of just instrumental and I'm thinking of choral and vocal, Talos is is who I think of. And I think when the people hear this piece tonight, they'll they'll hear that. I mean, and I'm sure they might even recognize it. I think it's been in a few video games. I, I can't begin to name them, but I think Halo might have used part of it. Maybe even Assassin's Creed. I, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised
1: with Assassin's Creed. They've definitely touched up in the Renaissance era, and so right. I wouldn't be surprised if they used some of Talus. However, it was a different area of the Renaissance. Right. But right. still, Talus is Talus. Right. Um.
0: Would you like to introduce the piece for us, Zach?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, the piece that we're going to be playing by Talus tonight is a uh, Spin in aluminium Um. It is uh, the translation for that is a uh, hope in any other. Um, it is actually a forty-part Renaissance motet composed in 1570. So this was the later part of his life, and so during this time, you'll uh, as you listen to the piece, you'll start to hear like those uh, like you'll start to hear like this lamentation, almost this uh, this sense of want to be forgiven inside um, so the piece. Uh, it was actually written for eight different choirs uh, of five voices each. And so, I mean, this was a huge piece. And something like this had never been done before. This was phenomenal. It's not Um, something
0: you would have seen to go to a church (laughs) and you'd have this giant choir. No, the choirs back then were actually professional, paid four, five, sometimes six people.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so this is, you know, eight groups of four, five, six people. (laughs) And so, I mean, this is a huge piece. And uh, it's widely considered to be one of the greatest pieces of early English music and one of the greatest choral works ever composed.
0: I I agree, and you know when we were looking for recordings of Tallis, it was actually really hard to find, which is which is odd considering how famous he was. I know just here this year we've we've done some Tallis with the "If You Loved Me," our chapel choir did that this year, and I mean Tallis is a very very famous composer from that era, so it was odd not to find a lot of him in recordings, but this this piece, this Spim and alium, just kept showing up.
1: I think that if we were going to find just one piece by Talis, this was the one to find. I think so too. Absolutely. Um from a non-musical standpoint, uh how would you think 40 people singing one piece would be? Or yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I think it comes with that time also. Um, again, since you know people were able to actually think about doing stuff and breaking barriers that just haven't been broken before, um and I think the word is polyphonics. Yeah, yep, that's um, it. Yep. That, you know, it's, some people thought it was crazy that, you know, you could do that. And that, you know, they thought that the words were blurred out. But no, the, that still, even though some people couldn't understand the words, they still were able to get it through. And then, you know, they listened to it again. And something brought them back to the music. And they listened to it and they listened to it. It's and they understand the underlying reason behind it. Absolutely.
1: And, and I think it's I think it's amazing that uh these composers of the time can write something in Italian and those of us who are not Italian even this is Latin, write something in Latin and uh we won't understand it ourselves the language, but just listening to it, it just shows how much music can play on your emotions because you can you can
0: feel it pulling at you. Right. And I think that's phenomenal. I think back then the knowledge that pieces weren't always written in the vernacular, especially these pieces for these church, these sacred pieces. And of course, this I don't think this would be considered so much a sacred piece. But, well, it might, could be, for what it talks about. But I feel like the music back then was made more to be geared towards pulling you, and actually making your soul feel it, actually talking to your soul, and the, your, your deep inner, instead of just that level of, oh, I understand this music, it should have been, oh, I want, oh, I feel this music, oh, this music pulls me, oh, it draws me. Exactly. Oh, how it makes me feel.
1: And that's a good cursor into the Baroque, which is our next period. The Baroque uh, is a lot about emotion. It's a lot of extravagant, and it's it's a lot of that, and it's a lot about um, just that general idea. And so... um, it's a good cursor into the next area. So I mean, at the end of his life, even though it wasn't the broke period yet, he was starting to have those kind of feelings, and so this was a good cursor to that beginning of change into a yet another period.
0: Right. So I mean, let, let's let's see what our listeners have to say about this after they've listened to this piece. We're gonna we're gonna open up the phone lines after this piece goes off. The number to call is four seven nine nine seven nine fourteen ninety after we hear this piece this Spim by tallis we want to we want to hear back from you what what do you think of this piece so again that number is 4799791490 and enjoy KUOZ 100.5 is an FCC-licensed radio station operated by the University of the Ozarks, Clarksville, Arkansas.
3: Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to From the
1: Concert Hall here on KUOZ 100.5 FM, community radio from the University
0: of the Ozarks here in Clarksville, Arkansas. Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Starch. If you're just joining us, we are talking about the choral music of the Renaissance this week. But if you've been with us this whole time, thank you. As always, it's great to have listeners. It's great to know that people are enjoying the show out there. We, we usually have a really constant stream of listeners, and we thank you all for tuning in. With us this week, we've also got Wes Needham. Wes, I'm going to ask you once again, say hi to the folks out there. hey. Hey. <laughs> So, during the song, you two were off on a tangent. Do you, you want to tell the folks listening who couldn't hear what that was? I think they would really love to hear about your thoughts on music.
1: Sure. Um, we were just talking a little bit more. Um, before we uh, play, uh, play that song for you guys, we were talking about how uh, music really pulls at you and uh, the effects it has on you. And we were just talking a little bit more about the science behind that and uh, some of the studies that have been uh, been shown. Wes, I believe you're uh, telling me about some Russian scientists and some of their studies.
2: Yes, uh, you know, leave it to the Russians to find out what alters the brain, you know. (laughs) (laughs) They they were doing some EEG uh, studies, and they saw that people that listen to classical music, their alpha brain waves were uh, affected different than any other kind of music, and this allowed them to easily be put into a state of calmness. And... I mean, it kind of makes sense that the, you know, at the time that this music emerged, there was so much conflict, so much, and, and a lot of inner conflict too, that, you know, these people needed a way to calm down. <laughs> they, they needed some calming music. And that's what they got. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And um, uh, some of the stuff that I was talking about was just that, um, it shows like how music affects us. I mean, even from early childhood, we uh, we learn our alphabet through a song. And so I mean it helps with retention and uh there are music therapy therapists out there who are uh working with uh children with uh Aspergers and Alzheimer's uh or not Alzheimer's Aspergers and uh autism they're working with uh children with that um because it helps them be more social it helps them uh, get past those barriers that usually block them because music is a universal language that people can connect through and even with people with autism uh, at- sorry with uh alzheimer's like I, it's like i had messed up and said earlier um people with alzheimer's even um there have been uh, studies shown and uh, music therapists that actually help people with alzheimer's um help retain information a lot easier like the memories that they're losing can be brought back sometimes through some of the music that's played uh memories are so well associated with music and uh we do stuff like that all the time when we're trying to memorize something you know when we create a rhythm
0: or something like that and it just music's part of our, our everyday lives Right. Now, we're getting on to the end of the show. We're to our last composer, our last piece. And he was a very influential person at the very end of the Renaissance, going into the Baroque. And that was Thomas um, de Victoria. He was born in 1548, and he lived through 1611. He was the most famous composer of 16th century Spain. He was also a Catholic priest, an organist like Thomas Tallis, and a singer. He actually, Instead of being a performer, though, he did prefer the life of a composer, and he, he didn't put himself out there in that sense performing like Talos would have, I think, as an organist.
1: Which is understandable. As a yeah. priest, he doesn't want to take any of the glory away.
0: Right. Um, he was known as the Spanish Palestrina <laughs> because hmm. he, um, historians believe he studied with Palestrina in Italy later on. And he was one of few composers back then whose families we can trace. We know what his uncle did, what his grandpa did, what his great-grandpa did, what his great-uncle did. We know about his family.
1: Which is rare. Like, Talus, we have nothing on his childhood. And we only have one etching of him.
0: But what's interesting with Victoria is we don't know a lot about his later life, aside from a few, a few smidgens. We know a lot about Talus in his later life, but not his early life. With Victoria, it's almost the opposite.
1: That's interesting.
0: Um, He actually studied organ at the St. Giles School for Boys in Avida, uh, or so historians think. And eventually he got a grant from Philip II, the the king of Spain at the time, which allowed him to go to Rome and study. That was was where he met a Palestrina and would have studied with him. This added the Italian influence to his music that we hear when singing uh, De Victoria. He was was also respected um he would in the religious community he was asked about his thoughts before someone was appointed to a clerical position which was very odd for someone who's just a common priest they the bishops would ask him how do you feel about this person being appointed to the cathedral what 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 are your thoughts on that do you care that was very odd and i think even today that's not something we see a lot of
1: no just saying that just seemed off to me
0: yeah it, this, is, this is someone you thought would have rose to more power, but uh, that maybe to me suggests that he didn't want it. Maybe he liked the life of just the simple cleric.
1: Exactly, and I think that may be one of the reasons why he also didn't want to step into the limelight and do any
0: performances of his own. He just wanted to put out the music that touched people's hearts. Right. Eventually, though, he did leave Italy and return to Spain, where he spent the last years of his life as the royal chaplain. He, he served Charles V, his daughter, and his family as their, the priest of the royal family, where he lived in a convent not far away from the palace. He actually died later on, of old age, there in the, um, the convent, and was buried in an unknown grave. We, we don't know which is his, and it still hasn't been identified today.
1: Which happens uh, more often than you think to composers. We'll address another very famous composer as we get into the classical period who is also buried in an unmarked grave and we still don't know where he is and I think you'll be surprised.
0: Right. In looking at Victoria's music tonight, we're going to look at one of his sacred works, part of the Officium Uh, De uh This is the main part of it, which is a mass. And in it we're going to see the offertorium, the Sanctus Benedictus, the Agnus Dei, and the Communio. So, we'll see the offertory, the glorification of God, the benediction of God, the song, the the Agnus Dei, meaning Lamb of God, which is Christ, and then the communion setting. These all, of course, would have been Roman Catholic settings of the Mass, but this was um, Tomas de Victoria's own setting for them for a Mass.
1: Absolutely. And as you can see, I mean, even though uh, with all the conflict on the church, there was still some very, very impressive choral music for the church put out during this time.
0: Right. I mean, people, just because the church is splitting everywhere doesn't, doesn't mean that people didn't still love it in the same sense. It still played that critical part in their lives that we would have seen before. But what I can appreciate about this
1: period of music for the church is that now... Unlike before, we can finally have music that touches everyone in the church, not just people who can understand the words inside the music. Finally, people can just listen to something and actually have emotion like put into them from the sounds.
0: Right. We we actually this piece, these pieces are all going to be in Latin, of course. But we we see people giving back to the church. You know, they had always given to it, but now we see more of that diversity in it because of the new churches, I think. We have hymns that we sing today that we consider strictly Lutheran hymns, or hymns that were um, inspired strictly by the Lutheran church or the Lutheran style, as we call it. They may not be, you know, only for the church that Luther started, but we, we know them as Lutheran. Absolutely, and
1: I mean, for most people whenever they hear the uh whenever they hear anything in Latin or large choral pieces like the one that we just played by Talus, their mind instantly goes to the Catholic Church, right, even though he was inside the period of England and London whenever the Catholic Church wasn't there anymore. it right. was at the Anglican Church, but he was still writing that style of music
0: right, you know, even though the church did split, there is still some similarities, and the the music between them was still that same style of we care for the church this much. We are putting all of ourselves into it. But, like I say, we're going to send you off with this piece tonight, the the last four pieces, well, four works in Victoria's main Mass. But before we let you go tonight, we all just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's listened in. A thank you to the folks at the Robson Library who help us with music and research each week for our show. We, we couldn't do it without everyone there. A special thanks, of course, to Sarah Nolan, our marketing director. Wesley Needham, of course, for coming on to the show and adding his thoughts with us tonight. Wes, Something. thank you so much. awesome. Um, of course, also our executive producer, Alex Teagues, and everyone here at KUZ 6 who supports us and helps us through each week.
1: Absolutely. Big thank you from all of us. And big thank you to our listeners for being so loyal to us, coming in and back, listening to us, letting us share our ideas on music with you.
0: Right. So, thank, of course, thank you all. It's for you, the viewers, that we do this. And thank, of course, everyone who helps us. As always, we love to hear from you. We, we want to know what you think, so you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash from the concert hall. Or you could just type us in that search bar there on Facebook, and you'll find us. The page has become quite popular since it got started a few days ago. I think we're up to 56 or 57 likes in just a few days, which is great for a brand new show just getting started.
1: Absolutely. And if you have any questions for us, any comments, anything like, hey, I really like that. You should play that again sometime. Tell us. Let us know. We'll do what we can to make sure that we keep you guys happy.
0: Yeah, we we check our inboxes. And, you know, from the Facebook, you can find our other information. But, you know, I'll give that to you too, of course. Our email, of course, is from the Concert hall radio at gmail.com. Again, that is from the Concert hall radio at gmail.com. Send us an email. Let us know what you think, like Zach said. We, we'd love to hear back from you. You're why we do this. Of course, on Instagram, you can always find us. It is K U O Z Concert Hall. You might find a couple interesting photos of through the week getting ready for the show. Something funny, I don't know. Maybe my sushi dinner before the show. <laughs> Anyone who watches our Facebook. And then always on Twitter at F-T-C-H underscore K-U-O-Z. Again, that's F-T-C-H underscore K-U-O-Z. Tag us in a post. We'd love to hear back. Let us know what you think. And as always, thank you for tuning in. And good night from everyone here at, from the Concert Hall and ku Studios as we send you off with Thomas de Victoria's Mass, his official, the last four verses of it that Victoria Mass.